Let's dig into Revelation. How about that? Ready? I can just, with a brief, I'm very aware of our time this morning and, 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 and everything that's going on here. I just want to say this. I confess to you, I confess, yeah, nothing like kids screaming on Sunday morning. They're happy screams. They're happy screams. Um, I confessed to you a few weeks ago that uh, Pastor James and I were kind of kicking around the idea every summer we recognize you're getting ready to go on vacation and we're getting ready to take some time off and those kinds of things. We're maybe not here as frequently as we once were. In fact, one trend I'm seeing at Echo as a whole, we're growing in the number of people that call us our home, but the frequency with which people are attending our church is less and less and less. And so people who maybe a year ago were attending three times a month might be here two times and two times a little less. Not, hey, it's just a reality. We get it. I would love if everybody was here every single week of the month. We think that it's important at the same time. We understand that there's life and there's things that go on and you can't be here all the time. You got work, vacation, other things. Sometimes you need to catch up on, some of you catch up on your sleep. Other kinds of spiritual things we do. But um, we recognize the importance of in a summertime when we realize there's going to be even more travel going on. We don't want you to feel disconnected from what we're teaching on Sunday. So one of the things we try and do every summer is take one book of the Bible and either preach through it in its entirety, a chapter at a time, or take a portion of that book. If it's a really long book like Revelation, we will not get through Revelation in the summer and do any justice to what's in there. I confess to you I was a little intimidated. I have, I have preached one time when I was a youth pastor in Georgia, I preached through a few chapters of Revelation with my high school students. They're a pretty advanced group and they were really into that stuff, um, but I've never like, tried to tackle the whole book. I would say, I've read it through a couple dozen times. I've just never taught through it. And I was intimidated. I told you that. After spending the last 10 days in prep and just all these conversations Pastor James are having, I digging in, I'm enraptured. This is an amazing letter to us. And I cannot wait to invite you. I don't want you to be intimidated. I want to invite you into this letter along with me this morning. We'll start in chapter one today. And then, uh, uh, spoiler alert, we're going to chapter 2 next week, okay? So can I encourage you to take a slow read through Revelation chapters 1 and 2 this week, okay? Add it to your Bible reading if you're already doing Bible reading. If you're not, start there. I don't want you to be intimidated. In fact, the very first part of this letter, I don't want to get ahead of myself, there is a gigantic invitation and explanation of the purpose and the function of why we have this in writing today. That has really just inspired me and got me really thinking. So let's dig in. I'm not going to read the whole chapter to you. We'll start in verse 7. Okay? Let me read the scripture to you. And then we'll talk about what it means. What it meant to the people who heard it first. What it means to us today. Here we go. Revelation chapter 1 verse 7. This is the Apostle John is writing this letter. Give you some information about him in a moment. It is a letter. We have lots of letters in the New Testament. This one's especially unique. There's only one letter kind of like this one, and it's this one, and I'll tell you why in a moment. He is, in verse 7, he's pulling on some Old Testament prophecies that we find in, in, uh, in Zechariah and in Ezekiel and in Isaiah. So some of this language is familiar from the prophets. Let's listen in as, as John writes down something he expected to be read out loud to a congregation someday. Okay? So here we are. Look, he... This is talking about Jesus Christ, the Son of God, when he says he. Look, Jesus Christ, he comes with the clouds of heaven. It's talking about the second coming. Okay? And everyone will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the nations of the world will mourn for him. Yes, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord God. I am the one who is, 
who always was and who still is to come, the Almighty One. And now we have the vision of the Son of Man. I, John, now he's talking personally here, first person. I, John, I'm your brother. I'm your partner in suffering. And I am your partner in God's kingdom and in the patient endurance to which Jesus calls us. I was exiled to the Isle of Patmos for preaching the word of God and for my testimony about Jesus. Now he's looking back. It was the Lord's day and I was worshiping in spirit. In other words, he was deeply, deeply, deeply tuned into God on the Lord's day. Now that was the first day of the week for them because at that time the Roman emperor said that we have to set aside a day of the week for you to worship me, the emperor. And the Christians pushed back at that and said, well, if we're going to have an emperor's day, we're going to have a Lord's day. So John is telling people this didn't just happen randomly at some day. There was a specific day at a specific time on a specific day of the week when I was deeply tuned into the Spirit of God and this is what happened. Uh, Verse 11. Oh, I'm sorry, verse 10. It was the Lord's day and I was worshiping in the Spirit. Suddenly I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet blast. The voice said, write in a book everything you see. How hard of an assignment is it to just write down with words what you're seeing with your eyes? Okay. That's part of the challenge of reading the book of Revelation. It was seen and then turned into a book. So you lose a little something, don't you? Right. Everything you see sent to the seven churches in the cities of Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. When I, John, turned around to see who was speaking to me, I saw seven gold lampstands. Standing in the middle of those lampstands was someone like the Son of Man. That's a term that John was familiar with because he knew the Old Testament very well. And in the book of Daniel, the prophet Daniel wrote about Jesus and called him the Son of Man. So he's using a term that would have been familiar to the readers then to describe Jesus that was in the Old Testament. He was wearing a long robe, which high priests wore. And he was wearing a gold sash, but it wasn't across his waist like the priests did. The higher the sash was, the more high their office was. He's saying it was actually across his torso. So he's saying, I see someone who looked like the Son of Man, but he was dressed like a high priest, but not just any old high priest. He wasn't just wearing any old sash. It was gold, and it was as high as you could get it. He was the highest of high priests I've ever seen in my life. His head and his hair were white like wool and white as snow. His eyes were like flames of fire. Now, what was the Jesus in your kitty Bible? What did he look like? He looked like this guy? Jesus in your kitty Bible had neat little soft hair and a little beard, white robe with a sash. He was smiling and playing with children. What about this guy? <laughs> Would the Jesus in your kitty Bible have lasted 10 minutes in the streets where you grew up? What about this Jesus? Huh? This is our Lord. This is the conquering king. This is one coming with the clouds. His eyes were like flames of fire. His feet were like polished bronze refined in a furnace. And that, again, if you know Daniel, is there a story about a furnace in Daniel? Fiery furnace, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Furnace in their time meant trials. It was a word that all the early Christians understand. When you're walking through the furnace, we're walking through like Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We're walking through like those guys were back in Daniel when the three guys were thrown in the fire. That's our trials. That's our test. And it says that he sees this guy with feet that looked like they had walked through molten metal in a fire refinery, but that they've now been formed into shoes because the fire didn't consume him. They've refined him and become part of him. And what we're seeing is this is a conquering king who comes not as someone who feels sorry for us, but has walked through the furnace before us. Isn't that cool? When they're re- and you know, the early church is reading this, and they're probably just sitting up straight because it wasn't real easy for the early church. 
They went through some really, really, really horrible persecution. I've totally preached most of the message already. I'm sorry. I love this book. Um, uh, He held seven stars in his right hand, and a sharp two-edged sword came from his mouth. Now we get some of the great imagery that we love to debate. And his face was like the sun in all its brilliance. When I saw him, he didn't run to him and hug him. When he sees him, he doesn't skip and do a dance. What does he do? I fell at his feet as if I were dead. Now, interesting. He didn't die. He fell as though he were dead, which is interesting. You read all the Old Testament. What does the Old Testament say happens if you try and look on the face of God? You die. You ever try and look at the sun? Burn your retinas right out of your head, okay? Well, some of you have done it and survived, but don't tell my son that, okay? Listen, you can't, you're not meant to stare at the sun and live. And yet he falls at his feet as though he were dead. But the, the story changes here. He says, but, his, but he laid his right hand on me and said, don't be afraid. I'm the first. I'm the last. You may remember me, John. I'm the living one now. I died. You remember that? I was here once already. And I died. But look, I'm alive now and forever and ever. And all of the other pagan gods at the time of the writing of this letter were different than God because they were all dead. And he's saying, you can serve whoever you want, but I'm the living God. I'm the one who lives forever and ever. And I hold the keys of of death in the grave. And here he gives John his mission. Listen to this. How do you like this assignment? Write down what you've seen in two categories. Write down both the things that are happening now in the first century in real time and also things that are yet to come, things that will happen. Now he helps us. He decodes some of this weird symbolism for us. Here you go, John. I'll help you out. I can see you're looking at these stars kind of confusedly in the lampstands. Let me break it down for you. This is the meaning of the mystery of the seven stars you saw on my right hand and the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. The seven lampstands are the seven churches. Isn't it nice when God just tells us, here's what it means? And I will, I can't get ahead of myself. Okay, there are lots of epistles in the New Testament, right? Lots of epistles, lots of letters. They were all written from an apostle to a group of people or a church. There's only one epistle in the whole New Testament who says it's directly from Jesus Christ to a church, and that's Revelation. We learn in the first chapter this is directly from Jesus to the church. So very briefly, who writes it? Did you catch it? Who actually is doing the physical writing? So Jesus is is dictating it. He's the mediator of the vision. He knows what God wants us to know, and he is feeding it to John in a movie, in a vision. And he says to John, you're going to be the only person who gets to see the movie. Everybody else is going to get what you write about the movie. Okay? So John writes us. What do we know about John at this point? He's aged. He's elderly. He tells us he is exiled or banished to the island of Patmos. Why? Because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. He says, what does that mean? All we know is that what he's telling us is not just that he preached. He was preaching Jesus. The truth about Jesus. And the Romans found him a destabilizing force in the empire and they threatened him. You can either stop preaching Jesus and remain free or you can keep preaching Jesus, and we're going to send you to the penal settlement, the penal colony there in Patmos. And he said, I have a choice between my comfort and my fellowship with Jesus. I'll take fellowship with Jesus. 
And so he is, there's a debate whether he was imprisoned or whether he was banished. Uh, the quick summary is, uh, history tells us that on Patmos, there was both. People were imprisoned there, and so they were under watch by Roman guards, and they were sent to work in the mines on Patmos. Patmos was an infertile island. Rocks, rugged terrain, 16 square miles, 40 miles, uh, or 14 miles off the, I'm sorry, 40, 40 miles off the southwest coast of Miletus. Nothing grew there. It was rugged, rocky mountains and and, and rocks, no nice things growing there. They had mines there that could be worked, and so it was a work camp for those who were imprisoned. John seems to tell us that he was exiled or banished. Those people weren't sent to work. They were just dropped off to fend for themselves. So doesn't change the story at all either way, but there's just some debate on that. I'm going to take John's word for it. He says he was exiled. I'm going to take his word for it. But yet even in exile, he honored the Lord's day, didn't he? He was deeply in tune with the Spirit. He could have gotten bitter. He just said, you know what? You can isolate me from everybody, but I'm never alone. I have Jesus. And in fact, a lot of people believe that the environment of the rocks and the nastiness, he used those as allusions and vocabulary to help him write out some of the apocalyptic pictures he saw later on. So he's, he's on the island of Patmos. He, is, he thinks Jesus is so real to him and so precious to him that he would rather be exiled than to not talk about Jesus. So... About the letter of Revelation. So that's who's writing it. Here's, in a sentence, Revelation. Revelation deals with the final catastrophic period of history. Okay? When God, after mortal combat with the powers of evil, emerges victorious. That's what Revelation's about. It deals with the final catastrophic period of history. When God is going to do battle to the death with evil. And God wins. God wins. That's the summary of the entire book. And it's unique, like I told you, because it is a letter. It's written first, it was written first to seven churches. They were listed in here. Did you catch that when we listed? So this is God saying, there's something I need the church to know about history. Son, he says to Jesus, you go visit my servant John and you don't tell, show him. Show him and tell him to write down what he sees and then put it in a scroll and send it off to these seven churches. Now, who are these seven churches? You understand there are more than seven churches in existence at this time. There's a lot of them listed in the Bible. You have the church at Colossae. You have the church at Hierapolis. You have the church at Cappadocia and Bithynia. You have a lot of other churches. Why these seven? There's a lot of debate. Some people don't think they're literal churches. Some people say these churches indicate seven different periods of actual history. And so they were not literal churches. It was for us to read and understand that in history period number one, this is going to happen. History period number two, that's going to happen. That's one theory, not the one I hold to. I'm more comfortable with the more accepted definition is understanding geography. We know every one of those seven cities listed did in fact have a very strong Christian church. Also, every one of those cities in the order that they're listed is listed. If you started on a circle and you put them on a map, they were listed in geographical order at seven points around a circle spaced 30 to 50 miles apart, all connected by a very well-known traveled road. And every one of those seven cities had something in common. They were the postal distribution center for that region. So the most common accepted idea for this, and I have to jump ahead a little bit, that scroll, John tells us, this letter was not seven individual letters and in that we were sending one letter to this church 
and only that church, and then the second letter to its intended recipient, and only that one, and so on. Every single message was to be written in one scroll, sent to the first city, where the church would gather together, and any reader would read the entire scroll of all the letters to that church, and then send it on to the next one. And so it was a body of content where every church was to hear every letter written to every other church and to learn from it. It was supposed to be moral instruction to them, and that's the same thing for us. It was relevant to the church of then. It is relevant to the church of now. It's supposed to be heard and obeyed. This is not just a collection of predictions, and if you look at Revelation that way, you miss the whole point. As John's writing this letter, he gives us every indication to believe that he thinks its authority should be put right on par with all the Old Testament prophets. Daniel was written, and it was to be listened to and to be obeyed. Isaiah was written by Isaiah. It was to be listened to by the followers of God, by Israel, and to be obeyed. They were authoritative. They weren't just suggestions. They were the word from God through the prophets to the people to listen, to be shaped, transformed, and to obey. And John gives us every reason to believe. He says there will be a blessing on the one who reads it out loud because he knew that's how it would be distributed to the churches. And literacy was not common back then. You'd have to hand select someone in your church who was good at reading written word. He said there's a blessing on the reader and there's blessing on the, on the listeners as they obey it. So friends, we're not coming into Revelation to just try and triangulate the date of the return of Christ. We're not going in here to try and figure out the revelation of who the Antichrist is. We're not going into Revelation to try and crack some sort of code. We're going to Revelation to let it change us, to shape us, to mold our lives because it has the authority to tell us how to live. So I want to make sure that you get that. Here's the one, I can skip through all the rest of that because I'll leave something for James to talk about next week. Um, here's the assignment he gives him. <laughs> this crazy assignment. On one of the Sundays on the island, we see in verse 10, he is deeply in tune with the Spirit of God. A voice says in verse 11, write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches. This means that the vision, the movie that John is going to see is not just for him but it's for all of us as well. We are the church. It's for us too. And, and the point of writing it down is to transmit to us the same kind of... John's supposed to capture in words and give us the same type of experience. We're supposed to read this book with our imagination. We're supposed to have an experience with this as we read it. John's having experience. and He's got this really steep ladder to climb in a literary sense of trying to use his vocabulary and the written word to... Uh, evoke the same type of emotions and experiences that he was having. It's not easy to do to write down what you see. If I said, write down a 500-word essay on the spotlight, look at it and write 500 words on that, that's not easy. It's abstract. There are, there's a brightness. There are some things that, the, that our senses don't translate well into written words, but this is John's thing. It's easy to write it's, it's easy to write words that you hear. It's just not easy to write in words glorious things that you see with your eyes. But it's possible because Jesus said to do it. Jesus does not intend to come each of the... This is, this, if you get nothing else, get this. Jesus did not intend to go visit each of the seven churches and give them the same movie he gives John. He could have done that. He could have said, listen, I need to get this vision out to the people. And what I'm going to do, my strategy is going to be, I will personally show up on the Lord's day. And while everybody's deep in the spirit, I will miraculously show them in absolute reality a picture of the things that are going to come. That's one option. He says, no, that's not the option I'm going to use. I'm going to go to one person. I'm going to show that person the vision. 
I'm going to have them write it down, and I want everybody else in recorded history to not be waiting for their own personal vision. I want them to open up their Bible, and I want them to seek me through my word. And if they'll seek me in my word, I will reveal to them everything I revealed to John. Now, you do understand it makes it a little challenging because a lot of these things were meant, you know, John experienced firsthand. But you know, here's the one thing. Here's the big idea. As you're reading through Revelation, if you can keep this in front of you at all times, it'll keep you from wandering into excess and extremes. The big idea is that understanding Revelation requires grasping this fact. John got the vision, we get the book. Well, but pastor, I want to know what the 37 eyes on the owl mean. Look, John got the vision. We get the book. But pastor, I'm wa- I watch the news for my devotion. We don't need to seek Fox, CNN, Alex Jones, InfoWars, whoever it is that you go to for whatever kind of media you think you're getting. Facebook, Twitter, social media. There's one place that has all the answers you and I need to have. And they're here in the book. God is saying this. I could come to you in a vision while you sleep. And there's plenty of people who call, one rant, I'll limit myself to one rant today. There are plenty of men and women who I've heard assigned to themselves the title of prophet. And their main bent in life, their angle, quite candidly, how they make a pretty lucrative living, is that they claim to have advanced and additional information beyond what the Bible provides to us about some of these things. You see, they are obsessed not with the point of the letter. They're obsessed with trying to be the person who has the simple, extra special decoder ring. Here's my thing. Friend, let's say you have the decoder ring. What are you doing with it? You're going around to people who already believe what you believe, and you're just getting excited about how much you know, and that you've got the drop on everybody else. Friend, when I recognize the end can happen at any time, it doesn't make my head get big. It makes me look inside my heart and get very humble and look to my neighbors and say, I want them to be as ready as I am. So what we're not going to do is try and interpret everything. Some of this is to be read imaginatively. Like one theologian said, to try and read too much into this is like trying to unweave a rainbow. Just look at it for its beauty and its terrifying, annihilating possibilities. Just look at all of it, experience it, and let that experience shape your heart, just like it did John's. Now that I'm almost completely out of time, let me give you the three points. (laughs) I'll give you the three points, and I, I think I might be able to preach one of them. Point number one, here are just some, some observations I took out of the first chapter. Point number one, the belief that Jesus can return at any time should and will shape our lives by making us more aware of our own insides and more humble and gracious towards others. What are we talking about? The doctrine of the second coming is right here in verse 7. Behold, he comes not on the clouds, but with the clouds. Behold, here he comes again. And every eye on the earth will see him. And everyone who has pierced him, whether it was the ones back at the cross or the ones the New Testament says, like every single person who sins against the Lord is as though they're piercing him again. Everybody who has ever wounded him and have rejected him will mourn because he's returning to judge them. There is a day when Jesus will come again, the second coming. So that's the doctrine. The doctrine is Jesus has come. He's coming again. He came once to save us. He's coming again to judge us. So what does that mean? Is Jesus coming to convert your neighbors and your family who don't know him? Or is he coming to judge them? Well, all those people are an object of both mission and future judgment as you and I are. 
And what that means is, and the New Testament says this over and over again, we who believe in Jesus, what we're supposed to be doing between you know, the first time he came and when he's coming again, what we're supposed to be doing is looking at the mission field of the lost world around us. We're to be deeply, every single person deserves the opportunity to know there is, that they need a clear presentation of the truth of the gospel, that there's life and salvation in Jesus. They also deserve to know that there is judgment coming. God holds the church responsible for getting the word out, and he holds himself responsible for the judging. We as human beings completely reverse this. The human heart's default mode is to be hyper aware of everybody else's sin and very unaware of our own. See, when you do it, I call it lying. When I do it, it's complicated. When you do it, I call it gossip. I call it slander. I call it rumors. When I do it, it's venting. It's venting. Me clearing the air. It's me dealing with my emotions. Right? We are hyper aware. I mean, when they're not in church, they are backslidden. When we're not in church, we're taking Sabbath. The human heart is bent towards being obsessed with all of the brokenness and the sin and the dysfunction in everybody else's lives and rationalizing and sanitizing our own. But what the Word tells us is that if you and I really let the truth of the second coming sink deep into our hearts, it will completely reverse that. The Bible talks about the... I'm skipping over a whole lot that I should talk about. But the Bible, when it comes to the second coming, talks about it being imminent. That means could happen at any time. There's another language that we use and we say it could happen soon. And what that really means is soon but not yet. Bible says at any time. We like to say, well, it's coming soon but not today. Maybe not this week. Maybe not next week. If you really understand what the Bible says, that there is a day of judgment coming. When Jesus himself will return with his awesome, terrible light. It will shape the way that we live. No longer will I be concerned about everybody else's issues. I will be living my life in constant readiness for the imminent judgment of my thoughts, of my actions, of my deeds. I will live my life in such a way that when that light shines, I won't need to be embarrassed. I won't need to be afraid. And what it does, it makes me very aware of my own insides. And it also releases me to be more gracious And humble towards the issues of others because I say, listen, my job is not to judge them. My job is to keep my heart clean. And heaven help them. I don't know what their issues are. Jesus will judge them. So, okay, I don't have to. I can stop keeping track of their issues because Jesus is keeping track. So I don't need to do that. I don't need to remind them of their issues. He's got it. But I also need to be more gracious for them because I understand what this is about. And I don't want them to live in fear or shame of that day. You see, when the early church got this, they understood Jesus could come back at any time. And it was something that was both wonderful that they looked forward to, but there was a certain sense of terror in their heart that they ought not let a single moment go by with any sin, with any disobedience, with any rubbish in their heart that needs to be dealt with before God. Much more I could say, but we'll leave it there. Let the doctrine of the second coming sink in. Friend, if you don't know Jesus, this is going to be a, terror, a day of terror for you, the Bible says. The Bible says everybody will see him coming. This is not some abstract thing that happens individually like the mainstream churches says. The conservative church says, no, this is a literal historic event. Jesus is going to come back, everybody's going to see him, but the conservative churches get hung up on, and what will the signs be, and when will it happen? That's what we want to know. Well, pastor, what are the signs? You know, what year is it coming? Let's talk about the signs. Let's go through the news. I'm not doubting that. We should be aware of what goes on. But understand what Jesus says. 
What did Jesus say about people knowing the signs and the things? Jesus says, it's impossible for you to know when he's coming. It's impossible to know. Jesus said when he was on earth, I don't even know. The point of revelation is not to give you a date and not to give you the decoder ring. It's to make us aware that it could happen at any time and give us a mission to understand what we should be doing and to roll out for us specific historical events that will happen that we should be watching for because God wants you to understand history is not a haphazard collection of random events. It's all divinely orchestrated and it's working towards an end that will be catastrophic and apocalyptic and he wins. That's the point of revelation. And I completely ran out of breath, so let's skip to the second point. I'll give you the, the last two points, 11, 22. Because of sin, we learn, verses 9 through 18, the thing we need most becomes the thing we most fear. I think I can preach this pretty quick, because I already kind of did this morning by accident. Here's what John says in verse 9. He says he sees Jesus. Can you let that sink in for a second? I've never seen Jesus. I've imagined him, never seen him. He sees Jesus and he says, it's like looking right into the sun, feeling a furnace at full blast and hearing all of the oceans of the world roar at once. He has a face and hair like wool. He has eyes like flaming fire. He has his long robe and a sash. He's got feet that have been through a furnace. We have to resist the urge to try and over-interpret some of these things. Um, Because to try and track down the source of all them would, like I said, be like unweaving the rainbow. Just imagine it and be moved by it. John uses those illusions for their evocative and emotive power. If you look at your son, and I said this earlier, if you look at the sun, your eyes will be burned out. So here's a crazy thing. John looks at Jesus. It's like looking into the sun and feeling a furnace at full blast. All the oceans of the world are roaring at once. He falls down as though he's dead, but he doesn't die, which is crazy. Because if you read the Old Testament... You look on the face, no one looks on the face of God and lives. But if you go back even further to Genesis, where did we all start? We started in the face of God. When he put Adam and Eve, his idea was God's presence, translation of presence, in the face of. Adam and Eve lived in the presence of God. All the love they needed was there. All of the self-assurance they needed was there. All of the confidence over insecurities was there. None of the comparing. None of the anxiety. None of the worry. All the warmth that every human being needed to be completely and totally fulfilled was in his presence. But what happened between that moment and when the Bible now says you can't be in the presence of God and live. And Isaiah in chapter 6 gets this vision of God. And the closer he gets to him, he's in terror. He says, I'm in pain and I'm in agony. Take the terrible presence away from me. And we go back to Revelation. The presence comes and the face comes and John falls as a dead. What happens in between? Sin. Sin separates us from being in the face of God. But here's the twist. But you were made by God. You were built by God. You were set up for him to be with him. God made you. He built you. And he designed you to belong and to fit in his face. The problem has been and always will be sin because in his face is all the love you ever need. In his face is all the completeness, all the courage, all the joy, all the power, all the strength, all the self-assurance, all the answers, all the absolute, utter completeness of togetherness is there. And John falls away as though he's terrified. And every other story in the Bible about this ends in death, but not here. Because this is the second coming. And Jesus puts his hand on his shoulder. And he says, don't you be afraid. 
Now, how can he do He's essentially saying to John, stand up and be in my face. Stand up, John, in all your brokenness and humanity and stand in my face. How can he say that? I wish I had 10 minutes for this. I've got 30 seconds, so you've got to grab it the first time through. How can he say this? Well, Pastor, you said he's coming to judge. He is. You said he's coming to judge the world, and anybody that's not right, that, that they're going to face judgment, absolutely. And when he puts his hand on John, it's like he's going to put his hand on you and me. He's going to say, stand up, because the judge at the end of history has actually entered in the middle of history. And when I entered the middle of history, I took your judgment for you. And I'm coming back to offer my judgment. My judgment is well done. Good and faithful servant, get your new body and enter into the joy of the Lord and be in my face forever. Do you see what's happening here? What the Bible is showing us that what you need the most is absolute completeness. Whether you follow God or not, whether you consider yourself a religious person or not, this much I know about you. Your deepest desire is for absolute completeness. And the Bible says the reason you're missing that is because it's found in one place. It is in the face of God. And the reason that being around God or religion or things may make you nervous is not, it's because of sin. The good news I have for you, my friend, is that that completeness is available at your invitation. It is made wide open to you. All you have to do is understand that Jesus does exist and he rose from the dead just like the Bible says that he was and you need to understand he needs to be absolute Lord in your life and follow after him and you will experience the same bliss, the absolute saturation, the completeness that only being in the face of God can offer for us. Friends, this is more than just a book of codes. It is instructive. It is life-giving for us. Point number three, worship team, will you come join me? Here's the last thing he says. He's saying this to the churches then and now. Here's what he says. No matter how bad things get, God will be with us and he'll still be in charge. Isn't that good news? Have you ever been in a situation where things were getting bad and worse at all at the same time? They're getting bad and bad and bad and they're worse. Here's what Jesus, here's what Jesus is saying through John to these churches. Things are going to get bad. Yay. Write more, John, please. Tell us about it. And he does. In fact, he writes out some of the things that are going to happen to the, these seven churches. They were under heavy persecution. He says there's going to be mass crucifixions lining the streets. Some of you are going to have holes drilled in your head, and they're going to pour molten lead inside of it. You're going to be flogged. You're going to be mocked. You're going to be put to death. There are going to be people beheaded. But he says, look at the feet. Look at the feet of the Lord. These are not feet that are carefully pedicured in sandals, who have never touched dirt, who are gazing down on you from a 500 mile aerial view and feeling sorry for you. When John sees Jesus, he says he's not standing above the candle stand. He's not standing away. He's right in the middle, holding the stars in his hands. And he says, John, here, let me be specific. These candles don't stand for candles. These are my churches. And I'm standing with them while they're walking through their furnaces. When their dryer breaks. When their job ends. When their finances run short. When their attempts to get pregnant are unfruitful. When they lose a child. When their siblings and their family turn on them and cause friction at home. When things fall apart, I'm not looking down on them from 500 miles away. I want the church to see me, eyes burning like fire, 
faced with whoa, high priest of all priests, standing among them with my feet bearing the evidence of I have walked through the furnaces, furnace of all furnaces first. I died and I descended to hell and I worked, walked through the worst furnace you could ever imagine. A furnace even worse than your dryer or your friction or your finances. I walked through hell and I held captivity captive. And I led the prisoners free and I hold the keys to death, hell, and the grave. And I am here with you and I am going to walk with you. And no matter how bad things get, they won't ever be as bad as they could be because I've already faced the worst furnace you could imagine. So your furnaces now won't burn you up. They'll refine you if you'll let them. This is what he says. Let's pray together this morning. Heavenly Father, we recognize and we thank you for sending us the letter of revelation to tell us about the final period of history when you're going to fight evil and you're going to win. We receive this letter as not just a collection of riddles to be solved. We receive it as authoritative for our spiritual progress. We're going to consider this as truth that's going to shape our moral and spiritual development, not just a book of predictions. We believe, Jesus, that you did come once. You came to save us. And we look forward to the day when you come again to judge us and to take us home. We realize these things could happen at any time, not just at some distant point in the future. We will live as though these things can happen anytime rather than soon but not yet. We want to be shaped by the doctrine of the second coming. We want to live in constant readiness for our judgment. And family, I want to just for a moment talk to those that are here this morning and you would say to me, I'm not ready for judgment. I'm not ready. If Jesus came to me like he came to John and he showed his amazing and awesome but terrible light onto the depths of my heart, He'd see all my brokenness. He'd see all of my disobedience. He'd see all of the other things that are in my heart that are keeping me separate from God. And I don't want to leave this place terrified. Friend, you don't have to. I don't want you to live in terror. God doesn't want you to live in terror. That's not what he's about. He wants you to know, he wants you to have the sobering reality of a fact that there is a day coming for judgment. And at that point, it will be too late for us to then see him and correct ourselves. We need to be ready for that day, not wait for that day to get ready. Here's how you get ready. You have a relationship with him where you can just live in his face and in his presence. If that's you and you need to be ready for that day, I'm going to lead you in a prayer of confession right now. Will you join with me if this is something you need to say to the Lord this morning? Jesus, I believe you. I believe you rose from the dead. I believe you've paid off the debt that I made to your father. And I believe I want to accept that payment today. So I accept that. Thank you for forgiving me. But more than just that, I'm not just coming to you for a handout and then moving on. You're my Lord now. You've always been the Lord, but I've not been living that way. So today, I symbolically bow the knee of my whole life to you. It's like I'm stepping out from behind the driver's seat. I'll sit shotgun. I want you to drive. We go where you lead me. And I trust you. And I'll follow you. And now, will you let me be in your face? I feel the warmth of your presence around me right now. I've never felt more loved, accepted, complete, whole. I look forward to growing in my relationship with you. 
name I pray. Amen.